What is going on in Georgia? People can't vote. What is going on? This is unfair. Yes, it is. Which might be the whole point. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountain's KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, And all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. The new presidential battleground state of Georgia's statewide primary elections on Tuesday were absolutely overwhelmed by what even even the New York Times describes today as a full-scale meltdown of new voting systems put in place after widespread claims of voter suppression during the state's 2018 governor's election. Scores of new state-ordered voting machines were reported to be missing or malfunctioned, as we detailed at some length on yesterday's broadcast as the meltdown was then underway. Hours-long lines materialized at polling places across Georgia, as even many of those who showed up at 6 a.m. in hopes of avoiding crowds were then forced to wait in line. For two, three, four hours in lines, lines stretching blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks from the polling place so far that it took a drone shot to be able to see some of these lines. People at the end of the lines could not even see the polling place. They were so far away from it that as temperatures pushed 90 degrees along with intolerable humidity, and even downpours in some areas as voters stood their ground. Not all voters, however, were able to do so. Some just couldn't. Many people reportedly were forced to leave. You heard the woman at the top of the show that we quoted. That was Anita Hurd. She is 80 years old. She stayed. It took three hours for her to vote, even though she showed up first thing in the morning. But she stayed and she voted. 
But many people left before casting a ballot and concerns uh, spread throughout the day that the problems would disenfranchise untold voters, particularly African-American voters, as it was predominantly black areas who experienced some of the worst problems. With previously Republican-leaning Georgia now emerging as a battleground state in this year's presidential election and featuring not one, but two competitive U.S. Senate races, the voting mess rattled Democratic officials and voters, with some blaming the state's Republican governor and secretary of state for hastily instituting a new computerized touchscreen voting system without enough hand-marked paper provisional ballots at precincts in case the voting machines did not function. And as predicted, at least on this show, at least for many years now, they did not function in many locations across the state, particularly in counties in and around Atlanta, which is one of the most Democratic-leaning and minority-heavy parts of the state. It's a disaster that was preventable. Stacey Abrams, the Democrat who narrowly is said to have lost the disputed 2018 governor's race, said on Tuesday, she said it is, it is emblematic of the deep systemic issues we have here in Georgia. If you have incompetent management and malfeasance, voters get hurt, and that's what we see happening in Georgia, she said. Security experts had warned that there were not nearly enough that there was not nearly enough time to switch systems before the 2020 elections, especially amid the coronavirus pandemic, which ravaged the state and justifiably scared away hundreds of poll workers. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, one of our favorite Brads, uh, the one who forced these new and flawed and unverifiable touchscreen systems on every county in the state. Well, he blamed local officials, particularly in Fulton County, which includes most of the city of Atlanta, while falsely claiming that there were very few issues elsewhere. In fact, by mid-afternoon, counties outside of Atlanta had begun extending voting hours to account for time lost, tending to the new machines, which failed to start up, which did not respond to poll worker pin codes, which wouldn't accept voter access cards created by one of the polling places. Other two computers, the electronic poll books that create those voter access cards to be used in the touchscreen computer voting systems. That, of course, was in cases where there were enough voting machines, as many sites had too few. And some were missing equipment altogether when polls opened on Tuesday morning. In all, some 20 counties were given approval by state judges to extend precinct hours on Tuesday night, with one of the last voters reported to have finally cast a ballot at 12.37 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We have 159 counties, and by and large, 150 counties have done a really good job, said uh, Secretary Raffensperger. He said we have one county that just stands out with glaring failures, and that's Fulton County. And unfortunately, that's our largest county, he said. Even as the meltdown was ongoing, Raffensperger was asked by Georgia Public Radio about the ongoing disasters, and he described it as a great day for Georgia. A uh, great turnout today. We're excited about that. We've had great turnout in the absentee process, great turnout in the 16 days of early voting. It looks like we're having a strong turnout again today. It's a good day for Georgia. Yes, we had a couple counties that really struggled, obviously, and we've talked about that. 
but it is a great success because people are voting and at the end of the day, you know, we're going to have great turnout and that's a good thing. <laughs> Man, a great day for Georgia. Rick Barron, the Fulton County Elections Director, said that Raffensperger, quote, can't wash his hands of responsibility while adding that trying to simultaneously conduct an in-person election and a mail-in uh, voting election had stretched the county's resources. In fact, Raffensperger had ordered that absentee ballot applications be sent to all of the state's 6.9 million active registered voters, whatever active means, according to the secretary who came to office in an election where the previous secretary, now the state's governor, Brian Kemp, had purged half a million voters from the rolls just one year earlier. But many of those who filled out the absentee request forms never received their ballots before Tuesday's election when they were due back at county headquarters. Even Stacey Abrams was forced to vote in person after she said that her absentee ballot arrived with the return envelope sealed up. She said she tried everything, including steaming it open because she watched a lot of mystery TV shows and thought that might work, but it didn't. And she, too, was forced, like so many others, to risk her life during a pandemic to vote in person on Tuesday. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman joined others in, in, a, in calls for an investigation and issued a statement ripping Raffensperger for a, quote, failure of leadership, charging that, quote, Election Day issues relating to the use of state-purchased voting machines represent an attack on the democratic process. The Secretary of State's office, he said, has alleged these issues resulted from a failure of county leadership. If there was a failure of leadership, he said, it starts where the buck should stop, at the top. It's the Secretary of State's responsibility to train, prepare, and equip election staff throughout the state to ensure fair and equal access to the ballot box. Those Georgians who have been disenfranchised by the statewide chaos that has affected voting systems today in numerous DeKalb precincts and throughout the state of Georgia deserve answers. I would say they deserve a hell of a lot more than just answers. But the voting problems that Georgia experienced on Tuesday were hardly a surprise. Residents reported requesting absentee ballots and waiting months, months for them to arrive. And some never came at all. And of course, on this program, we have been warning for years about the dangers of Georgia's new touchscreen system and the need for hand-marked paper ballots at polling places. Those don't break down. They don't require three sets of computers in a single precinct. Uh, they can be known to reflect the intent of voters. And they also cost about a third of the more than $100 million that was spent on these new failed computer systems made by the private company Dominion Voting System, uh, for whom Governor Kemp's former chief of staff actually now works as a lobbyist. Isn't that convenient? While the worst problems were reported in greater Atlanta, no corner of the state had a fully functional voting experience, according to officials. Nikema Williams, a state senator and the chair of the Georgia Democratic Party, said, quote, Our secretary of state has not adequately prepared us. We knew today was coming. If you show up and there's not a machine, that's a problem. Marnia Mitchell, a 50-year-old African-American stationery designer, arrived at her polling place five minutes before polls were to open at 7 a.m. Three hours later, she was still waiting in line. She said, it's disgusting. 
It's despicable. In an interview with the New York Times, Raffensperger, pulling a Donald Trump, accepted no blame whatsoever for the hours-long waits or the voting machine problems in Atlanta or elsewhere in the state. No element of the election's meltdown, Raffensperger said, was his fault. The counties run their elections, he said. The problems in Fulton County are the problems with their management team, not with me. But in fact, it was Raffensperger who ordered all counties in the state to move to this new untested system this year in a critical presidential election year and even threatened counties that moved that wanted to move that tried to move to hand marked paper ballots. He threatened them with lawsuits if they chose to do so. The ACLU of Georgia had warned in January, well before the coronavirus emerged as a concern for voters, that the state was ill-prepared for this year's elections. And good government groups like the Coalition for Good Governance has been warning and filing lawsuits in Georgia for years to try and prevent the use of Raffensperger's terrible, dangerous, flawed, unverifiable, disease vector and now failed touchscreen voting systems before it was too late. As Rachel Maddow on MSNBC noted in her own coverage of Tuesday's fiasco, citing a quote in The New York Times. DeKalb County Commissioner Marita Davis Johnson told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, quote, even the poll workers don't know what to do. These are new machines and you expect people to run them in less than a couple of months. If this is a preview of November, then we are in trouble. If this is a preview of November, we are in trouble. Well, you know, it depends on your perspective, I suppose. Because, again, it's not like Georgia didn't know this was coming. Not what happened in their last disastrous botched election. Not after what they did to the voter rolls on purpose for that election. Not what they did with this voting machine debacle at the very last minute, right before this presidential election year, which one good government advocate today in Georgia called, quote, like Walmart, trying to decide they wanted to change out their point-of-sale system on Black Friday. Maybe this is trouble today in Georgia. You know, maybe these are are problems and snafus today in Georgia, or maybe this is something on which the Georgia state government has been diligently working. Because everybody saw it coming, and then it did. It certainly did. And who could have foreseen it? Well, one who did foresee it years ago and has been talking about it loudly on this show while filing lawsuits and even earning an official investigation from Raffensperger, hoping to harass her and scare her off of her advocacy, uh, is in fact the one cited by Maddow there without mentioning her name as one good government advocate in Georgia. Say her name, Rachel. It's Marilyn Marks. And as a longtime election integrity advocate and executive director of the nonpartisan nonprofit coalition for good governance, she has been doing everything in her power to sound the alarm before Tuesday's meltdown. And our friend Marilyn joins us once again today. Welcome back to the broadcast, Marilyn Marks. Thank you so much, Brad. I greatly appreciate it. Are you sl- And I learned a lot yeah. in that introduction there. <laughs> I've been so busy, I haven't been able to catch up on the news. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you were cited by uh, Rachel Maddow. She didn't mention your name. I'll ask you about that in a second, because first I want to ask you, why, oh, why didn't you warn us in advance about what could happen on Tuesday <laughs> in Georgia, Marilyn? 
Well, you know me. I just, I, I'm just so soft-spoken. <laughs> I, I hesitated to say anything. Well, you know, I, I, I know that you and I share some frustration on these matters. Uh, you know, I'm happy to actually see folks like Maddow uh, covering what went wrong, what went so wrong on Tuesday, and her coverage was actually pretty good. I don't know if you, you actually saw it when, when she quoted you there or not, but it would have been a lot more useful had that report happened long before voters were disenfranchised by these systems across the state, as you had tried to warn, you know, in Georgia, as I had tried to warn here in L.A. County before we saw a similar meltdown of our own new touchscreen voting systems on Super Tuesday back on March 3rd. Uh, what what good does it do to cover these disasters after they happen, Marilyn? You know, Brad, I've been asking myself that all day and all day yesterday. What are we doing wrong that we cannot get people to hear us Mm -hmm. before the disaster happens? And, you know, maybe it is the nature of the beast. It seems like in all civil matters of civil rights, Mm -hmm. You know, things have to get to such an extreme Mm. that the disaster has to happen maybe multiple times before our society can pay attention. Uh, uh, You know... You go ahead. That's all I know. Well, you know... The Atlanta Journal-Constitution actually did an excellent job of covering the uh, the meltdown on Tuesday. The, the entire matter is getting a lot of coverage today from a lot of corporate media outlets. I'm glad to see that. But, you know, today is too late for those who lost their votes yesterday or were forced to risk disease and death by standing in line for four hours thanks to a terrible touchscreen system that never had to be used that never should have been used that you have been you know trying now for months and years to stop from being used now i listen i when i talked to you earlier today marilyn you were concerned that you might be too bitchy to come on the show today after what happened (laughs) uh and and of course that is usually my job on this show but i want you to to feel free to be as bitchy as you like here uh, and it's a, certainly a softball. What went what went wrong on Tuesday in Georgia, Marilyn? Everything that you and I have been predicting, and then some. We didn't miss many things, but <laughs> there there were some things I never I never predicted. But you know, Brad, it it is that our leaders, from the Secretary of State, the Governor, down to the County Boards of Elections, and our state representatives, just do not want to deal with what they think is complex uh, election administration. Mm -hmm. They tend to believe that, oh, just let the professionals handle it. We don't need to be um, uh, looking at anything. Brad, in the the weeks leading up to this election, it was so obvious it was going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. As you know, we filed a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. You were one of the few... Uh, media outlets that covered it, it was not interesting enough. <laughs> you know, it wasn't sexy enough mm. for others to. And we couldn't get anyone, even even the politicians locally, mm-hmm. to pay attention to the dangers that were coming. I kept writing letters, writing letters, writing letters to them all. They would not respond and just would not at all engage on what we could all do to stop this. Mm-hmm. What happened? It was the system that you and I 
have been saying and predicting, just like you did with Los Angeles' CSAP, mm-hmm. it was destined to be bad. So we had that. And in, in Georgia's case, it was a brand new system in a presidential election year that we knew was going to have high turnout, and we add to it a pandemic. It, the very time we should have been saying, you know what, mm-hmm. in a presidential election year and in a pandemic, we need to be making things simpler, mm-hmm. not more complex. Yeah, We don't need to be adding all of these strange components that have never really been field-tested. In an environment where we've lost our long-time parole workers um, because of the pandemic, that people, uh, you know, there's a brand-new workforce that hasn't been trained. Nobody's been trained on this stuff. It hasn't even been fully tested. Yeah. It was crazy to choose the most complex system you could and add it on top of pandemic conditions. You described and uh, you, you described to the New York Times a, a quote total breakdown of the new voting system that you saw when you went to one of the polling places in Atlanta around 10.30 a.m. Uh, apparently all three elements, the electronic poll books, those are computers that allow voters to check in, the touchscreen ballot uh, selection machines, those are the ballot marking devices, and the ballot scanners. Yes, there is a third computer that then scans the, 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 the so-called uh, paper ballot summary that the ballot marking device has printed out that all three had broken down. I think a lot of people don't know that it's not just the touchscreen ballot marking devices. These uh, electronic poll books, they failed in Georgia. They also failed in Los Angeles. They have also failed elsewhere around the country. And now they're being used all over the country for this year's presidential election. I, I, I don't think people understand the extent of how elections are now reliant on these computer systems. Are you as terrified about that as I am, even beyond the state of Georgia? Well, certainly. And, you know, there's such a simple solution, Brad. You know, it's fine to use an electronic poll book so long as it's operating and you have got very robust backups mm-hmm. in, a, in a paper poll book. I don't mind if, if it's more efficient to check people in by, by computer. That's just fine. But you darn well better be able to have an audit trail, and if it starts giving you problems, go to the old-fashioned poll book that mm-hmm. you should have right there as a backup. Mm-hmm. As you know, we stood trying to get that, mm-hmm. and Judge Totenberg came very close to giving us what was needed, but she didn't quite. And we went back to court three times asking her, "Can you please force them to do paper poll book because it will it will be the saving grace uh-huh. if the poll books go down and she declined to do it the state was just so sure that they didn't need paper poll books <laughs> and and that was actually and it's not well understood by most of the the journalists mm-hmm. as you might understand Brad mm-hmm. but uh, that was the major failure yesterday well was when the poll books didn't work then then everything collapsed like dom- dom- dominoes because yeah. they had no 
Yeah. yeah, and we saw something similar happen here in uh, in Los Angeles on March 3rd. But the problem is those, as I understand it, the uh, voting systems that you use uh, there in Georgia that we use here in uh, in Los Angeles, that without the electronic poll books, you can't set up the, the ballot. You can't create, in, in Georgia's case, the voter access card that is then needed to work in the touchscreens uh, to to pull up the ballot there. So even if they did have paper uh, uh, poll book backups, voters still would not have been able to vote on those touchscreens. Am I right about that? Well, well, there is a manual override. Now, okay. I doubt that the poll workers knew how to use them. They probably right. had never been trained right. on the idea that you could go, put, you know, key in the voter's ballot file. Uh-huh. So it would have been possible, not desirable. So a lot of people said, well, just give, give people emergency ballots. Well, that was the idea that we had hoped they mm-hmm. would have emergency ballots. But unless you can find out whether somebody's already voted, mm-hmm. whether they're eligible voter in the precinct, you can't just hand them an emergency ballot. And so the, the real problem began, mm-hmm. uh, became those poll books. Yeah. And surely... Trying to trying to find the reason for optimism, um, surely in August and in November we can have paper poll book backups. Uh, well, you know, in, uh, in order to do that, then they're going to have to train them on that uh, manual uh, w- way to fire up the touchscreen voting machines. And, you know, if they continue to use them. And by the way, they did have emergency ballots at many precincts, reportedly, about a dozen, despite the fact that hundreds of voters were there. I want to ask you in a second about the uh, your your longstanding lawsuit that you mentioned there. Uh, mm-hmm. But but very, very quickly on this dispute between the secretary of state uh, uh, Raffensperger, who is taking no responsibility whatsoever for anything that went wrong, even though I guess it's his office who is in court opposing you calling for these reasonable safety uh, uh, backups. So there's a dispute between him and county elections officials who Raffensperger says are the ones who failed here to use his mandated touchscreen voting systems correctly. So uh, wh- how do you see it? Who- who's to blame here? Oh, you know, you know, well, we are all to blame to one extent or another, and the counties have plenty of blame. However, 90% of this problem was caused by Raffensperger and the state election board because they insisted that we use or that the state use mm-hmm. and the counties use the very complex Rube Goldberg systems that nobody had been trained on. They hadn't been properly tested. You know, shoving them in time in pandemic conditions when they could have simply done what you were saying, use the scanner and handmarked paper ballot and a uh, paper poll book and had a simple election during pandemic conditions. No, the Secretary of State insisted on this rollout and and gave the counties almost no choice. Now, they could have defied him, and he would have likely fined them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he gave them very little choice. He set them up for failure. So is it surprising that they, who were dealing with all sorts of chaotic mess, of the pandemic's making mm-hmm. and of the Secretary's making, he so set them up for failure. Is it so surprising they made mistakes? No. We should, if, if anybody, if, if any county had it go perfectly, 
then somebody's not looking hard enough because nobody could have made this work mm-hmm. what he did to them in these conditions. Well, and and nobody's uh, looking hard enough yet at all because we don't even have results uh, from these elections yet. Usually we get some sort of a, a, a unofficial results and then we can begin to look at them and find out if they're accurate or at least try to over the next several days and weeks. Uh, we're not even to that point yet, given the mess that we had in uh, in Georgia on Tuesday. Uh, now, as, as mentioned, you've got this long-standing lawsuit trying uh, where you've been trying to block the use of this statewide voting system. You were trying before it went sideways and disenfranchised untold thousands of voters. So does what happened on Tuesday change that federal lawsuit in any way? Is it too late for the state to change course here before the uh, critical November elections, even if the judge ultimately agrees with you that that these systems are unconstitutional and disenfranchising, as you as you have been arguing? Well, it, it's certainly not too late. And I expect that we will want to go see the judge very soon. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, before um, the state was claiming that all of our claims were just speculative, well, you know what? <laughs> not speculative anymore. No. Um, that we have... We have fabulous evidence mm-hmm. it's, not, it's, it's horrendous evidence that that this system does not create an accountable election so no of course they've got a chance to to make it right for August you know we've got a big statewide runoff in August mm-hmm. so we've got a chance to improve a lot and it's simple you were just mentioning the various components of the system, the electronic poll book, mm-hmm. the touchscreen. Actually, there's also a printer for each touchscreen. Oh, yeah. And then the scanner. Yep. You know what? If we want to make it right in August, and this is, this is why it's not really hard to make the change, leave everything except the scanner in the warehouse. Just bring the scanner and some hand-marked paper ballots mm-hmm. to the polling place. And... That is not hard for the workers to work with. Have a paper poll book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, let them have their laptops if that if that's helpful in the checking in process. And it's not like they need to go buy a new system, Brad, as you know. Because they have the scanner. They've got the scanners already there that are needed with this other system. So just hand-marked paper ballots, uh, give people a pen, let them keep the pen since we're still in the middle of a pandemic. right. And right. scan the ballots as they are scanning them now. Uh, I, I hope right. you can get an order for, from the judge for that. And you've got August. with the, That's a statewide uh, primary in August? We expect it to be. We're expecting that um, with, what, eight candidates running in the U.S. Senate uh, Democratic race, yeah. that it was not going to be surprising if nobody clears that 50%. Mm-hmm. So that would be a statewide race. And um, our statewide runoff. And and a fine opportunity uh, to practice using this paper ballot system before we get to the uh, nightmare that will come on November 3rd. Right. That's right. And in training people well. So this is giving us this runoff. We're going to be, you know, if the state will agree to do the right thing, this runoff gives us a really, really good dress rehearsal opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, and and when has the state of Georgia never uh, not agreed to do the right thing? Marilyn Marks, uh, (laughs) before I let you go here, 
because I, you know, again, we focus on Georgia. It's a battleground state. Uh, but even in Georgia, you know, I know that you worked with with Freedom Works for crying out loud, uh, a group funded by uh, Charles Koch, along with you know, uh, voting rights groups and advocates who were all trying to get the state to do the right thing and not use these machines, go to paper ballots. But it's not just Georgia. This is happening all over the country, and I, I think it's just. terrifying what's coming up, what could be coming up, what will probably be coming up on November 3rd. So I'm wondering, before I let you go, what can voters do? What can citizens in their home state do? And by the way, that would be in addition to donating to coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. Well, you know, I've been telling people because you are the one uh, on the ground doing the work that I wish a lot of these other voting rights groups were actually doing, suing, hold these uh, people accountable, getting the getting the, uh, the federal judges to take action. Anyway, coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. I strongly recommend uh, you, you, you support their work there. But what can citizens do above and beyond that to help in this seemingly endless fight for election integrity and for hand-marked paper ballots? And thank you, Brad, for, for that uh, vote of confidence. And we do need funding right now to go reinforce our request with the judge. Mm-hmm. So please, thank you for that. Um, so what can people do? There is something that's not all that hard that people can do. And that is, one, write a letter to your Secretary of State, your State Election Board, and demand it. But something that is likely to be more effective, even though it's harder, it's going to take some effort for for the voters to actually protect their election, mm-hmm. and that is Call every member of your county uh, bipartisan election board. Mm. Call every member. You can find them because they're local citizens. And say, look, you've got authority, county election board. We want an auditable election. We want it done with hand-marked paper ballots, and we want audits afterward. Don't wait for the uh, state to tell you you have to audit. Don't wait for a judge to tell you that you have to have accountable ballots. Do it on your own. And, you know, do it now. And you've got time to do it. I mean, these counties need the pressure from the citizens, and the citizens need to put pressure on those county boards, as well as the local Democratic Party and local Republican Party. They need to go see them and say, look, you lean on your appointed board members to get us audits, in paper ballots now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I remember, uh, you know, in the years leading up to uh, the March uh, Super Tuesday election out here, the the county board of election, uh, the uh, actually the county supervisors here in Los Angeles, they were all on board. They were one hundred percent, you know, with this new touchscreen five hundred million dollar touchscreen system. And then when it blew up on Election Day, they were furious. Who do we blame? What do we do? We want a full report. Well, you know what? They were to blame. They were warned. They didn't take action. Maybe they didn't hear the warnings because it was, by and large, just me trying to warn them. But if everyone does what you whatever, if everyone does what you recommend and contact these uh, county board of supervisors, the county boards of elections and make your voices heard, Maybe what they're seeing in Georgia, in uh, Los Angeles, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere will scare the hell out of them and make them do the right thing before it goes wrong. 
Marilyn Marks, longtime election integrity advocate, uh, the uh, d- uh, executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. You can follow her work on the Twitters. She's got a great Twitter feed, Marilyn R. Marks, the number one. And, of course, her website, coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. Marilyn, thank you so much, and I hate to say thank it, but you, we'll Brad. probably be talking to you soon. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so much. You bet. Goodbye now. Okay, quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Change's gonna come. Hope so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, didn't get to say hi to you at the top of the show. Hello. I know. Hello. Uh, we were talking over the break about uh, how Marilyn was talking there about how it takes a long time for change to come. Exactly. She was saying that, you know, it, sometimes it takes multiple disasters yeah. over many years, over mm-hmm. and over and over again, especially as it relates to civil rights. Yeah. To get people to hear it has to happen over and over and over again. And it just reminded me that this is like the uh, police killing of George Floyd. Yeah. You have to see this over and over and yeah. over again. Finally Finally, before something happens. And it also reminded me of climate change, Mm. that disasters, sadly, apparently have to keep happening over and over and over again. And maybe we'll get some action on that, too. Only after things go wrong do we ever seem in this country to... to make any changes. Well, uh, things certainly went wrong um, two weeks ago in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd. And today on Capitol Hill... Philanese Floyd uh, challenged Congress uh, to, quote, stop the pain as lawmakers considered a sweeping law enforcement overhaul so that his brother George won't be just, quote, another name on a growing list of black Americans killed during interactions with police. Floyd's appearance before a House hearing came a day after the funeral services for George Floyd, the 46-year-old Minnesota man whose death has become a worldwide symbol in demonstrations over calls for changes to police practices and an end to racial prejudices. Floyd became emotional as he told House lawmakers on Wednesday that his brother didn't deserve to die over $20. He was appearing before the House Judiciary Committee for an oversight hearing on policing and law enforcement accountability after Floyd was killed. George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis uh, police when an officer placed his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. And as three other officers participated in that killing, the event that uh, that has sparked an outcry and sustained protests across the country and indeed across the world. Um, 
has uh, brought protests over the issues of police misconduct and racial injustice, as well as calls for Congress to act. Here is the full opening statement from George Floyd's younger brother, Phil Anise, on Wednesday in the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. Chairman Gerald Nadler and members of the committee, thank you for the invitation here today to talk about my big brother, George. The world knows him as George, but I called him Perry. Yesterday, we laid him to rest. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I'm the big brother now, so it's my job to comfort my brothers and my sisters, Perry's kids, and everyone who loved him. And that's a lot of people. I have to be the strong one now because George is gone. And me being the big brother now is why I'm here today. To do what Perry always would have done. To take care of the family and others. I couldn't take care of George that day he was killed. But maybe by speaking with you today, I can make sure that his death would not be in vain. To make sure that he is more than another face on a t-shirt, more than another name on a list that won't stop growing. George always made sacrifices for our family and he made sacrifices for complete strangers. He gave the little that he had to help others. He was our gentle giant. I was reminded of that when I watched the video of his murder. He called all the officers, sir. He was mild-mannered. He didn't fight back. He listened to all the officers. The man who took his life, who suffocated him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he still called them, sir, as he begged for his life. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother who you looked up to your whole entire life, die? Die begging for his mom? I'm tired. I'm tired of pain. Pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother, who you looked up to for your whole life, die? Die begging for his mom? I'm here to ask you to make it stop. Stop the pain. Stop us from being tired. George called for help and he was ignored. Please listen to the call I'm making to you now, to the calls of our family and the calls ringing out the streets across the world. People of all backgrounds, genders and races have come together to demand change. Honor them, honor George, and make the necessary changes that make law enforcement the solution and not the problem. Hold them accountable when they do something wrong. Teach them what it means to treat people with empathy and respect. Teach them what necessary force is. Teach them that deadly force should be used rarely and only when life is at risk. George wasn't hurting anyone that day. He didn't deserve to die over $20. I'm asking you, is that what a, is that what a black man is worth? $20? This is 2020. Enough is enough. 
The people marching in the streets are telling you enough is enough. By the leaders that is our country, the world needs the right thing. The people elected you to speak for them, to make positive change. George's name means something. You have the opportunity here today to make your names mean something too. If his death ends up changing the world for the better, and I think it will, then he died as he lived. It is on you to make sure his death is not in vain. I didn't get the chance to say goodbye to Perry while he was here. I was robbed of that. But I, but I know he's looking down at us now. Perry, look up at what you did. Big brother, you changed the world. Thank you for everything, for taking care of us when on earth, for taking care of us now. I hope you found mama and you can rest in peace with power. Thank you. That was Philanese Floyd, the younger brother of George Floyd, who was killed two weeks ago by police in Minneapolis in the wake of... National protests and unrest. House and Senate Democrats have unveiled sweeping police reform legislation, while Senate Republicans are also now said to be working to craft their own reform proposal. It's unclear, however, whether there will be enough bipartisan support for anything to push through this particular Congress. House Democrats are aiming to bring their policing reform package to the floor for a vote during the week of June 22nd. The Democratic package was put together by the Congressional Black Caucus, the House Judiciary Committee Democrats, and Democratic Senators Kamala Harris of California and Cory Booker of New Jersey. It would ban chokeholds. It would create a national police misconduct registry, a database. It would incentivize state and local governments to conduct racial bias training for officers and set restrictions on the transfer of military-grade equipment to law, local law enforcement entities, among other provisions. While it falls short of the reduction in funding for police departments around the country, as many are now calling for in the defund the police movement, House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler spoke in support of the legislation. He said it would take a holistic approach that includes a variety of front-end reforms, to change the culture of law enforcement while also holding bad police officers accountable to separate them from those with a true ethic to protect and serve. The nation demands and deserves meaningful change, said Nadler, adding it is the responsibility of the and the obligation of the House Judiciary Committee to do everything in our power to help deliver the change for the American people. But it is a difficult path ahead uh, in any effort to reach a bipartisan deal on policing reform with congressional Republicans skeptical, skeptical about the Democratic proposals. Republican Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham on Wednesday rejected the Democratic calls to pass legislation to ban certain police tactics like chokeholds saying states and localities should be incentivized through federal money to make changes. He also predicted that Donald Trump would uh, get behind a Senate GOP bill 
that threatens uh, instead to withhold federal funding from police if reforms, which would be left up to the local police, apparently, if those reforms do not happen. Ask about Democratic calls to ban police tactics like chokeholds. Overhaul qualified immunity so it would be easier to sue cops in civil court and to create a national database to track police misconduct. Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is said to be leading efforts to craft a proposal for Republicans in the Senate, he threw cold water on all of those ideas, saying, quote, I don't see how those things get to the finish line. Well, they certainly won't get to the finish line, Senator Scott, if you, the only African-American Republican in the U.S. Senate, runs cover for your fellow Republicans who appear to have little or no interest in reforming the institutionalized racism and brutality baked into the cake now of police forces across this country. But I bet that would change. I bet they would change their tune very quickly if you did so, Senator Scott. Maybe it's time to be a hero for a change, sir. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Well, who told you to play that song, Desi Doyen? <laughs> you did. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Have a feeling we're not going to be seeing much of the Dukes of Hazards car, the General Lee, much in the future, I suspect, unless Donald Trump issues an executive order to demand, demand that Nickelodeon air the show. I could see him doing that. <laughs> I could actually see him doing yes, that. Yes, I know. <laughs> so uh, talk about, boy, uh, being on the wrong side of history, uh, it, it, it may only be, it may, it may be the only thing that Donald Trump has actually succeeded at as as president is being on the wrong side of, the hist- uh, of history. Uh, a few days ago, the NFL announced that they were wrong. They apologized that they were wrong for preventing uh, players from expressing their First Amendment rights to take a knee during the national anthem. Which, you know, Donald Trump was just furious about, turned into a, a political thing. Well, the NFL told him to get lost. And, and now this, just before airtime today, from NASCAR. From NASCAR. On Wednesday, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag from its races and its properties, formally distancing itself from what, for many, is a symbol of slavery and racism that had been a familiar sight at stock car events for more than 70 years. It's not a symbol of slavery and racism for many AP. It's actually that symbol for everybody. That's what the flag stood for. The move comes amid social unrest around the globe following the police killing of George Floyd. Protests have roiled the nation for days and Confederate monuments are being taken down across the South, which is the traditional fan base for NASCAR. Bubba Wallace, NASCAR's only 
black driver called this week for the banishment of the Confederate flag. He said there was, quote, no place for them in this sport. At long last, NASCAR appears to have obliged. They said in a statement that the presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events runs contrary to our commitment to provide a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and properties, they said. That move was announced uh, before Wednesday night's race at Martinsville Speedway, where Bubba Wallace... An Alabama native was driving a Chevrolet with a Black Lives Matter paint scheme. Good for him. Right? He got a shout out on Twitter from several athletes, including NBA star LeBron James, for using that scheme uh, in the race. The predominantly white field of drivers united over the weekend for a video promoting social change. A black NASCAR official, Kirk Price, took a knee before Sunday's race near Atlanta and what may have been a first for that series. Wallace wore a black T-shirt with the words, I can't breathe at the race. NASCAR did not address, however, how it would enforce the policy or indicate any penalties for fans who violate it by bringing the Confederate flag to the track. So I have a feeling this story will continue for a while. But decidedly not getting the message, as usual, was the president of the United States. (laughs) Like clockwork. Also, just before air, Donald Trump on Wednesday said his administration will, quote, not even consider changing the name of any of the 10 army bases, the 10 U.S. Army bases that are named for Confederate Army officers. Two days earlier, Defense Secretary Mark Esper indicated he was open to a discussion of the idea. But Trump tweeted on Wednesday, quote, these monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage, a history of winning, victory and freedom. You know, like how the Confederate generals they're named after were winners and victors who stood for freedom. (laughs) Good Lord. The uh, he said the United States of America trained and deployed our heroes on these hallowed grounds and won two world wars. Therefore, my administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military installations. Name changes have not been proposed by the Army or the Pentagon yet, but on Monday... Esper and Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy indicated in response to questions from reporters that they were, in fact, open to a bipartisan discussion of renaming bases such as Fort Bragg in North Carolina and Fort Benning in Georgia. Supporters of disassociating military bases from Confederate Army officers argue that they represent the racism and divisiveness of the Civil War uh, and glorify men who fought against the United States. Yes, I should say so. His uh, Trump's press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, I guess, still don't know how to say her name. That's she, close enough. She read uh, the aptly named McEnany, I guess. Uh, she read his uh, his tweets uh, saying that he, quote, fervently opposed the change to the base names, believes that doing so would amount to, quote, complete disrespect for soldiers who trained there over the years. He said uh, she said that if Congress were to pass legislation requiring the name changes, he would not sign it. The Navy and Marine Corps are now banning public displays of the Confederate Army battle flag on their installations. 
saying it was necessary to preserve cohesion within the ranks. Ten major Army installations are named for Confederate Army officers, mostly senior generals, including Robert E. Lee. Among the ten is Fort Benning, the namesake of Confederate Army General Henry L. Benning, who was a leader of Georgia's secessionist movement and an advocate of preserving slavery. So, sure, why not name a United States military base after him? A guy who was a traitor, who wanted to break up the United States, and who wanted to preserve slavery. It would be disrespectful to, to so many people if you changed that name, if you took his name off of that base. I, you know what, though? I bet if someone proposed we changed it to Fort Trump, I'll bet you he would agree with that in a second. Am <laughs> I, I wrong? Think, oh, no, I, I think you're yeah, absolutely right about yeah. that. Uh, a few voices in the military are openly defending the link to the Confederate symbols. Paul Eaton, a retired two-star Army general and former commanding general of Fort Benning, said that Trump's statements go against the ideals of what the Army stands for. Pete Mansour, a retired Army colonel and veteran of the Iraq War, said uh, that renaming these bases is long overdue. He said there might be some pushback from a small segment of soldiers from the South, but this is what we like to call a teachable moment. Now, he said, it's the time to finally bring about a change that will speak volumes as to what the U.S. Army stands for. And David Petraeus, who is revered by Republicans, he's a retired four-star Army general. He said about Fort Bragg, where he served with the 82nd Airborne Division, the fort that was named after a Confederate general, quote, the irony of training at bases named for those who took up arms against the United States and for the right to enslave others is inescapable to anyone paying attention. Now, belatedly, he wrote in an article at The Atlantic, is the moment for us to pay such attention. Well, thank you, General. Indeed. Donald Trump not paying attention because <laughs> that's what he excels at. All right, we got to get out. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, yep. to uh, my guest today, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated, and it is a great honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other we have ever done, you can download all of them for free and share them with everyone you know and like or hate at bradblog.com. We are supported by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 